Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. When I'm preparing, uh, I will take anything at hand. Uh, if I have a pad of paper, if I have a, a napkin, if I have a, uh, actually just a few minutes ago, a Kleenex was the only thing I had in the, down there, and I'll make notes all over the place, and I'll process things, and we'll discuss it in, in the team, different things. As a result, there are times that um, I have all these thoughts here that are connected together but they somehow don't get communicated in this moment. And then I'm really surprised that you guys don't make the connection. <laughs> and so, um, particularly this morning, uh, I'd like to just open in prayer if we could. Father, first of all, I pray your blessing upon the team as they go forward, that you pr protect them and provide for them in the ministry they'll be doing over in uh, the UK. I ask, Lord, that you would connect the dots this morning, that you would shape our hearts and our minds I pray for your grace and for your truth, Lord, and the power of your word and the presence of your spirit to be felt here today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1954, um, then-Senator Lyndon B. Johnson was opposed in a primary race by two wealthy Texans who used their nonprofit organizations to lobby against him and to support his uh, opponent. Uh, Lyndon B. still won pretty handily over it, but he was pretty hacked off about it. And so it was later uh, that year, July 2nd, 1954, that he introduced something that became known as the Johnson Amendment. It was done without debate. It was done without explanation. It actually didn't pass the normal ways of how those things would have been done, actually. But in his reaction to that, he got this law passed referred as the Johnson Amendment that prohibited nonprofits from engaging in endorsing uh, political uh, candidates or even in politics as a whole. As a result, that also impacted churches. And this has been the item that supposedly keeps churches from engaging in the political realm. Um, it's been challenged quite a bit. Uh, it's believed to not be constitutional or be able to stand. Uh, there's been uh, uh, over 2,000 uh, um, people who have violated it, pastors and churches, only in one case were they actually uh, convicted or punished in any fashion. And a lot of legal people believe it just doesn't have any weight. We are not concerned about the Johnson Amendment in what we do and in the decisions we make. So I want to put that in front of you first. The other thing I'd like to draw your attention to is Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. This is where the phrase separation between church and state is made. It's not in the Constitution, but it's an inference from something that is in the Constitution, and it's been used to segregate, again, the church from the political realm or from the place of public discussion. But if you read the letter, and I would encourage you to read it, it's a very short letter. It's only really three paragraphs long. 
The first paragraph is his um, sentiments of esteem and an affection for the Danbury Baptist Association. Um, the last paragraph is asking for prayers and protection and the blessings of our common father and creator of man. And then it's this middle paragraph that I'll read to you that relates. Believing with you that religion is a matter because this organization had written him out of concern that the state would intervene or get into church business. And so it's from that position that he's writing, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature should, quote, he says, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, unquote, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. In other words, he's saying in reaction and in response to this, that the wall was there to protect the church from the state, not the state from the church. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation on behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced that he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. We have every right to engage in the political process, to speak to the culture, and to address things. Having said that, you have in your bulletin today a position paper that we have just recently concluded uh, as leadership of the church. In this position paper, it doesn't cite the Johnson Amendment nor the Jefferson letter because we are not a political entity. What it cites is scripture because that's what we're bound by. And as we go into scripture and we look at Christ, we don't see him engaging in the political process. As we look at Paul, we do not see him engaging in the political process through their communications and forms and challenging things in that direct fashion. With the exception of Paul on two occasions. One is he uses his status as a Roman citizen to, to get himself off of a situation. And ultimately it backfires actually on him. And the other time is when he challenges the Pharisees and Sadducees and gets them into a, conflict, in a fight with one another. Having said that, the early church did not have the participatory government that we have today. They had a choice to either submit or rebel. Those were the only choices offered. You and I have the opportunity to engage in the political process. And as an individual in this country, you should. I hope you're listening carefully to what I'm saying. We are not afraid of the government. We believe we have every right to engage as an entity. You as individuals have not only a right, but a responsibility to engage. Having said that, the position we are taking in this paper is to say that we will not have petitions or political entities upon our campus here and during our services. Because we have a primary mission and is not political in nature. Our primary mission is the same as that of our founder. And that is to seek and save that which has been lost. We operate under what is referred to as the Great Commission, which is to reach all people with the name of Jesus Christ and to disciple them and to teach them. And that is our primary mission, and we will not involve anything as an entity that will distract us from this. We believe strongly with what Martin Luther King Jr. even said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master of the state, nor is it the servant of the state, 
but rather the conscience of the state. And it must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool or one of any political party. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. So having laid all that out there this morning, and this paper came in large part in response to the fact that we were approached by two separate parties to present two separate and conflicting petitions in regards to the subject of abortion. Both groupings are saying the other one is wrong in doing their position. So as we reviewed this, we said not only that petition, but other petitions we're not going to allow. And here's the reason why, as I said, it's our mission, our position, but it's also this. When someone comes in to this place and they're seeking God and they are thrust into their face with something that they see, at least, as a deeply political or divisive issue, whatever it may be, or in this specific case, someone who has struggled themselves with the guilt and shame of abortion and that's pushed into their face, or someone sees this as a violence against women in some way, or all the other things that come into play, it shuts down a conversation that we are attempting to have, and that is our primary mission to have. As individuals and as believers in Christ, there's a clear position on abortion, and we will discuss that this morning. But we are not going to allow this to take us offline for the primary responsibility we have. And so I would encourage you to read the document, take a look at it, and understand that, and understand where we stand in regards to this. It wasn't just off of this issue, it's off of other things we've seen politically come into play. Even years back, I had a friend uh, who um, was strongly into the recalling of the governor because of his stance on education, and came and was one of our greeters with a recall the governor button. And I asked my friend if they would take that button off because they're greeting people who would have a differing view on that. Again, it was polarizing and cutting that off. So on the moral and biblical platform, let's talk about the least of these. As we're discussing this, I'm very aware of the fact that as we discuss the whole subject and issue of abortion, that we're touching on something that is um, difficult. I've dealt with women who have committed abortions, as well as the men who have supported it. According to some of the studies over the last four decades, between 25 and 30% of all pregnancies in this country have been terminated. As many as 40% of women have had an abortion. These numbers are even close to being true, and there's reason to believe that they've actually been inflated and are actually probably, uh, um, not inflated rather, but are low. Then there are many today here who have terminated a pregnancy, and no one in this room is more than one or two degrees removed. And so I know the difficulty of what we're trying to engage in here today. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which is where we go to on these things, not the political entity, but Scripture, the statement is made that's very definitive and a very critical passage, one that, that you really need to memorize and consider in this age today. It deals with several hot issues. It says, so God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them, 
male and female, he created them. There are several things wrapped up in this. There's not only the issue of gender as defined as binary, male and female, but also something about the dignity of man and the nature of man. There's a Dr. David Macarith who for 26 years has worked for Britain's National Health Service as a physician in the accident and emergency wards, and by all accounts is an excellent doctor. In 2018, he was assigned to Britain's Department for Work and Pensions as a disability assessor. During his training, a senior um, employee told Macarth and others they should always address transgender people by their preferred, pro, their preferred pronoun, quote, in line with department's policy. When Macarth, Dr. Macarth said that as a um, Christian, he could not, quote, in good conscience, use pronouns that way, he was informed that if he refused to follow this policy, he'd lose his job. A few days later, as he reiterated his position of a theoretical scenario um, and his response to it, he was fired. Macrath repealed his uh, termination to an employment tribunal, saying that his rights to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, as Jefferson referred to him as, had been violated. He told the panel that for religious reasons, he could not refer to any as he'd been asked to do so, any specifically six foot tall bearded man as a she or a her. He then cited Genesis 127, quote, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created the male and female, created them. This was the response of the tribunal as they, as they um, uh, found against him. In their decision, they said this, and I quote, belief in Genesis 127, a lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism in our judgment are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others. The Bible verse that was cited by Macarth and repudiated by the tribunal is the singular basis for the idea of human dignity and fundamental rights. Without God created man in his own image, unquote, something referred to in technical terms as the imago Dei or the image of God, the only dignity anyone possesses is what others are willing to give them. The truth is that had scripture not introduced the image of God to the world's lexicon in the first place, the notion of human dignity wouldn't even exist. Even a raging atheist like Frederick Nietzsche acknowledged that. The ancient world didn't recognize universal human dignity, nor did any philosophy other than Christianity even imagine it to be the case. It's out of that passage of scripture as a starting point that everything else flows as to regards to how we view human beings. And Christians from the earliest of time have engaged in the process of ministering to what is referred to as the least of these. Abortion was common in the ancient world. Children were considered um, ownership of the parents and to be thrown away if necessary or, wa or not wanted. If it wasn't a direct abortion, they were left exposed often in Roman times on hillsides for animals to ravage and the elements to, to uh, kill. It, were the early, it was the early Christians that rescued those children, established orphanages through Christianity, hospitals through Christianity. And while laws are important in the history of this country, once we've given a freedom, unfortunately, in this country, we have never taken it back. With the exception of, of the temperance times of the 20s, 
and the prohibition that we attempted with alcohol, we've never taken back a liberty. We hope that one day abortion will be illegal in this country and it may be because of our arguments as a church and as a people, but it's also entirely possible that it's going to happen as a result of science, ironically. There are many positions that we're told as Christians that are untenable because of science, and yet the vast majority, if not all of science, actually supports ultimately Christian positions. The scripture says that, that the universe, all of it was created in one moment of time, and our physicists tell us now that's what they believe to be the case. We've said from the beginning of the church that abortion was wrong. And now, as ultrasound and other things have come into play, we're beginning to realize more and more that that's the case as we're seeing the images of these little ones. And it's changing the minds and hearts of people. Science is slowly catching up with where the church has always stood. But it's not just about the law and the legalities. George Bush made a statement that was true in 2005. He said, a true culture of life cannot be sustained solely by changing laws. We need most of all to change hearts. An interesting study that seems to validate this, that it's not just an issue of laws, but of heart change is this. Belgian and Dutch women have fewer abortions, seven per 1,000, even though it's legal. But women in Peru, Brazil, Chile, and Colombia have 50 per 1,000 where it is illegal. It's a matter increasingly of how we shape hearts and minds and not necessarily the force that's brought into play. It's love and, 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 and grace extended with a rational argument. But many of us have never really actually even explored the lies that form Roe v. Wade or the darkness that lies behind abortion. I know I hadn't as a college kid, educated, coming up. When I was still in my mid-20s, my view was being raised as a Christian, but in a secular society was to say, oh, I know abortion's wrong. I would never do that, but I would never make you feel bad about doing it. It's an American thing. You make your choice. You make your decision. I couldn't choose that or really argue even hardly against you for that. It was only after I actually explored and began to realize and was faced with what it's actually about that I began to change my position and my view. It wasn't until much year, years later that I came across Robert P. George's article. He opposed to abortion, and I want to make it clear, also opposed to a killing abortionists, the doctors who do it. He's opposed to that. But in satire, to point out the curious logic of a pro-choice position, wrote this as satire. He said, I am personally opposed to killing abortionists. However, inasmuch as my personal opposition to this practice is rooted in a sectarian, parentheses, Catholic religious belief in the sanctity of human life, I am unwilling to impose it on others who may, as a matter of conscience, take a different view. Again, satire. Of course, I'm entirely in favor of policies aimed at removing the root causes of violence against abortionists. Indeed, I would go so far as to support mandatory one-week waiting periods and even non-judgmental counseling for people who are contemplating the choice of killing an abortionist. Again, satire. 
I believe in policies that reduce the urgent need some people feel to kill abortionists while at the same time respecting the rights of conscience of my fellow citizens who believe that the killing of abortionists is sometimes a tragic necessity, not a good, but a lesser evil. In short, he says, I am moderately pro-choice. Now again, his stance actually is to say that the taking of any life whether it's an abortionist or whether it's a child, is wrong because he believes in the dignity of life. He believes that God created mankind all in his own image and that therefore they're worthy of respect and of honor. He would have known the passages in Jeremiah 1 verse 5 where the prophet is being told, before I formed you in the womb, God says, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Before you were born, you had an identity and a purpose and were known by me. He says, I knew you. The psalmist in the 139th says, for you created, O God, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Human life is sacred before God, made in the image of God. It's sacred, born or unborn. It's sacred. We're told in Psalm 127 that children are a gift from God. The damage we are told, and back that up, we are told that, 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 that to elevate women, there must be freedom in this region and, and embracement of that. In fact, there's a program going on right now entitled Shout Your Abortion, encouraging women who have had abortion to shout it out and make it positive because there's such a negative perception of abortion to try to change the narrative on this. But it was Christianity and Christ himself that elevated women, that said they're the same as men, that they're to be valued and cherished and they are not property. It is Christianity that has elevated those things. And historically, abortion has always been used by evil men to oppress and control women. Many of them who have had abortions because the men have pressured and have driven that. There are several different ways to argue that abortion is harmful to women. There's clear evidence that many women regret the procedure. Dr. Teresa Burke, the founder of Rachel's Vineyard, a care program for women who suffered from past abortion depression, and the author of Forbidden Grief, notes that 60 to 70% of women who undergo abortion have a negative opinion of the procedure. Burke believes that, that, that um, increased levels of depression, eating disorders, suicide, and self-destructive behaviors among women in the last 40 years are at least partly linked to this. In August of 2008, the Justice Foundation released a statement by 100 scientists, physicians, and mental health professionals stating that, quote, significant numbers of women suffer serious physical, mental, and psychological trauma as a result of an abortion, unquote. The U.S. Supreme Court cited the Justice Foundation's amicus brief or friend of the court brief when upholding the ban on partial birth abortions. And likewise, a 2008 
article in the Journal of Psychiatric Research noted that, quote, abortion was found to be related to an increased risk for a variety of mental health problems, panic attacks, panic disorder, bipolar disorder, PTSD, and major depression. Women are the first ones in other countries to be aborted as compared to men. When it's identified as a woman or a female, they abort and they selectively that the males live. This is created now in Russia, China, and India, great inequities between the male-female ratio, which means some men will never marry because there's not enough women out there for them. In fact, Putin has made the statement, Vlad the man, that the number one threat facing Russia in the future will be their inability to defend their borders because they'll not have enough soldiers to staff the military. And there's social distress that's increasing in China over the same issues. One of the reasons being is, women, you tend to have a civilizing impact upon us. And when that's removed, it creates more conflict and more unrest. We're told not only all these things in Scripture, but in Matthew, Jesus gives an illustration, and, and he, he, he talks about, about those of you in this gathering who went to visit those who were in prison, who ministered to those who were poor, or gave food or gave drink. And they said, when did, when did we do that for you? And he says, whenever you did this for the least of, me, of these, you did it for me. We minister to him. In the same token, he says, for those who have not done these things, he challenges them and, and, and they're sent off into a dark place. And they say, well, when did we ever see you? We would have taken care of you, Jesus, for sure. He says, whenever you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it for me. The least of these covers a whole variety of issues, only one of which we're touching upon here of abortion. We could go broader than this, and it's worth a conversation on immigration, where we have two things that we can know about at least. And one of the things you're told about is that Jesus was this illegal refugee to Egypt. That's an ignorant position for this reason. The Roman uh, um, Empire ruled both Egypt and Israel. There were no border controls. He was never an illegal immigrant. But the scripture does tell us that we're to have compassion and mercy upon those who are foreigners in our midst. It says we're to have to particular concern and care for them, while at the same time obeying the laws of the land. So whatever has to be worked out politically needs to not only be a legal issue, but also has to have compassion and mercy if we're to embrace it as Christians. There's a whole host of things, and we try to put our money where our mouth is, and so we're supporting Abigail Ministries who is a place that a, a person, a, a woman can have a child and be provided for with housing, education, and a future for up to two years of time in our location in our county here. Compassion Pregnancy Center that counsels and encourages and, and gives godly insight. It goes beyond that though. When we take the least of these, it's not only on this subject alone. This is the moment of, of, that we're discussing because of the paper and other things that are involved in our time period. But we've been involved in Central America and the poverty there for decades now. We're involved in the Osborne community, one of the more difficult areas that is close by just 20 minutes from us. Where Osborne High School and Chippewa Valley, the differences are vast as far as what is provided for. I was at a funeral in Osborne two weeks ago, last Saturday. As Bishop Harris, our dear friend, was having the funeral for a 19-year-old student of Osborne. 
who had died. And as I was standing at the door, 700 young people pressed into that gathering. The average age was probably 17. As I'm watching these young people come in and I'm reading the situations and circumstances, some tattooed literally upon their bodies and upon their foreheads. And as their grief was poured out, and I, I see the opportunity that is not available to many of them, my heart is broken for the least of these. In the same way that it is for our kids in Chippewa and Dakota and Stevenson who struggle with anxiety, depression, and other issues of their own. We're engaging in a reading program because we know the stats that say that, that if a kid's not reading at a third grade level, that it's like an 80 to 90% probability they're going to be in jail or that they will fail in life. It's incredible, one of the most significant stats. And so we've chosen to engage in this. And I'm proud of the fact that there's a number of you that have decided to get involved and are providing a reading program and are going to mentor some of these third graders, second and third graders uh, um, in a school that feeds into Osborne as part of our Osborne initiative. And as I was processing this, I, I was really struck beyond just the, the systems issues to realizing everything I have is because I'm a reader. From the time I was small, I read freaky fast. I type dinosaur slow. And that's why you can send me emails and I will read them. And I will never send one back to you. It'll be rare. It'll be a freakish moment. You can frame it when you get it from me, okay? I'll talk to you. I'll catch you on because I'm verbal, but I, but I read fast. And, and by the time I was in third grade, I'd read a book in my library in my, in, my, in my elementary school. And when I was faced a couple of years with the possible loss of my eyesight, it struck me with such dark depression. And when years ago I made a statement in a gathering like this, in a teaching moment, and made some crack about, well, here's the, and if you, if you can't read that, or if you're, if you're having trouble reading, or I made some idea of, of for those of you that can read, and it was an assumption that there was 100% literacy in the room. And I had a 50-plus-year-old woman come up to me at that time and say, my husband doesn't know how to read. He's never learned. I was blown away by that. It, there's nothing more important than the least of these. To the homeless that we attempt to minister to, to encouraging those who have chosen to keep their children. We, we strive to, to not just sign petitions, which you should do and you should review those things, but that we actively engage. And so in first service here, and we have a ministry called Roots that encourages people to foster and to uh, adopt children. And one of our couples this past week or two had just picked up a foster child. So this morning, picked up a foster child. Sounds like to go to the drive through at Taco Bell, doesn't it? You know, it's like... They had accepted a placement. I think it's a formal language. So John and Jess Pizzo, we prayed over them in first service. As on behalf of all of us, they ministered to this little one and providing a chance and a change for life. There is a legal and a political side to this, but that is not ours as an entity to be engaged in. That is something you should educate yourself and be involved. Don't be as ignorant as I was in my 20s. We're supposed to engage in this. And at the end of the day, abortion is just wrong. Violence and poverty is wrong. It's part of a world twisted by sin. And as individuals and as a congregation, we'll be engaged in that. But we have a central mission and we have a central purpose for which we will not be deterred from. 
And that is to reach those that are lost. That is to educate and to disciple, to train and to teach. We sang earlier, I'm not merely flesh and bone. I was made for something more. And everyone in this room, regardless of your status ethnically, socially, nationally, politically, if you're a Republican, God loves you. And before you sit there and say, well, we know that because we're Republican. If you're a Democrat, God loves you. Well, we know that because we're Democrats. If you're a socialist, you're wrong. But God loves you. God loves you. You're a human being made in the image of God. You have innate dignity. If you're LGBTQ plus, we may not affirm that position, but we would still love you because you're a person made in the image of God. You have value. You have worth. You have identity. In 1969, Dr. Bernard Nathanson was serving as a medical advisor for the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. It's now pro-choice America. After abortion was legalized in 73, he became director at the Center for Reproductive Health, which he claimed was, quote, the largest abortion clinic in the Western world, unquote. Later in his life, Nathanson said, Bernard Nathanson, Dr. Bernard Nathanson said, quote, I knew every facet of abortion. I helped nurture the creature in its infancy by feeding it great draughts of blood and money, unquote. But in 1974, an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Nathanson expressed his growing uneasiness with abortion. He wrote, quote, I am deeply troubled by my own increasing uncertainty that I had in fact presided over 60,000 deaths. There's no longer serious doubt in my mind that human life exists from the very onset of pregnancy. And his, his unease was intensified by the, ultrasound, by the advent of ultrasound technology, he said. For the first time, we could really see the human being, the fetus, and measure, observe it, watch it, and indeed bond with it and love it. I changed my mind because the new scientific data persuaded me that we could not indiscriminately continue to slaughter what was demonstrably a human being. And Nathan's initial insight about the humanity of the unborn child had nothing to do with religion. As a matter of fact, at the time, he considered himself a Jewish atheist. But before his death in 2011, Nathanson converted to Christianity. And when asked why he was baptized and received into the church, he said, because no religion matches the special role for forgiveness in Christianity. I want to emphasize this. When he was asked why he was baptized and received into the church, this abortionist said, because no religion matches the very special role for forgiveness in Christianity. There are those of us in this gathering all of us in this gathering, we cross a spectrum of sin. There are women in here who have had abortions. There are men in here who pressured, pushed, and paid for them. But there are those of us here who have other sins and other failings. Things that we could just as easily speak to and address 
The issue of abortion does not stand alone as an unforgivable sin. If you thought that the conversation today was, we're not going to get involved in politics as an entity, no, because we have a mission. As individuals, yes, and we will stand on this, and we will educate on this, and we will not be silent about this, and we will not operate out of a position of fear. If your process, though, in, that, in this was to think, oh, this is just about that subject and about staking out that position and shoving it in people's faces and, and all that's involved, that you're still not missing the point. What is our mission? What is our purpose? Now, that's ironic. <laughs> it's to reach and save those that are lost. What that means is this, this morning, in this time, and in this place, is that if you are here, and this subject of abortion is deeply personal to you, because you personally have walked through this, you've been a party, male or female, to this, if these words offend you, I don't know what else to say other than that you do have an issue with God. But if something in this conversation has brought you to a point of realizing the wrong of that, and then the next thing is, is, is being overwhelmed by, by guilt or by a sense of failure, then that is not the purpose of this. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He's shown us what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. To act justly means to say what God says about a situation or about a circumstance, whether you've experienced this or not, but particularly if you've experienced this, to come to the point of what God says about it. To love mercy means to realize also that God extends mercy to you. That's why we love it so much as Christians. Not because we're all that great of human beings, but because every single one of us, whether it's abortion, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's drug use or the abuse of another individual or some other sexual sin, heterosexual or otherwise, we love mercy because God gave us mercy. And in this place and time, the whole conversation isn't political and it isn't even positional. The end of this conversation today is this. If you have walked through this specific sin, and something today or in past times has come to you to realize that. If you repent of that and say what God says about it, there is forgiveness for you. There was for Bernard Nathanson, and there is for you. Each of us was made in the image of God. Each of us have fallen and failed. And the Lord has taken on him the iniquity of us all. So this morning, as a church, let's come back to what defines us as a people. And let us bow our heads. And Father, I don't ask for any hands raised you know every individual here, particularly over this issue of abortion. But Lord, as these people today, men and women, 
they turn their eyes to you this morning, in their brokenness, in their pain, maybe for the first time a sudden awareness of their sin, maybe something that they've carried for decades, God, and has worn them down and ground them down. But Lord, today, I pray that as they repent and lay this before you, that they'd realize that your mercy, your grace extends to them as it extends to every other person in this room who has failed and sinned. And I pray, Lord, that as they come to that realization, as they offer this burden up to you, that you'd lift it from their shoulders, from their mind and from their hearts, and that you'd restore these children of yours so that once again they could act justly that they in turn could love mercy and extend that to others and that in the forgiveness and winsomeness of your grace that they with the rest of us would with great humility walk together before you I ask this, O Lord, even as they offer themselves up to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church. Even when it doesn't function all that well at times. In Jesus' name. After first service, I had one of our people come to me and said that evidently um, we addressed this issue five years ago. And he had brought a, a young couple that was not married, was pregnant, was considering abortion. And out of that conversation, they chose not to. He said that they're now married and they have a five-year-old child. Two of them actually now, two kids. What we do matters what we say and how we think. But if you have carried this burden because you made a different choice and that continues to bear on you, that is not something that you need to bear. You need to realize God's grace extends to you and to release that and realize that there's nothing that's been wasted. He had a purpose that he'll work out of even that evil to bring good. There'll be those available up front to pray with you if you'd so choose. Next week, we conclude this series. Father, I thank you for your grace. Lord, guide us as a church and as a people to act justly, to truly love mercy because we've received it, and to walk humbly with you, God. Guide us in these things, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.